0: I'm crying and Dad walks in the shop and he says, mate, what's wrong? Why oh, are you sucking? I said, Dad, why did it have to be me? And Dad said, credit to him, he, d- he didn't say what I thought he would say. He-, he gave it straight back to me, he goes, well, why not you? You've got a good attitude, you can deal with this. It's only a bit of your leg, could be way worse. And then all of a sudden, these things are like, like great little verbal crack around the ears that I needed to say, hey, wake up to yourself, mate. Things could be a bloody lot worse and you've got out of this okay.
1: Hi, I'm Paul Fink. And this is Stroke of Luck, the podcast about overcoming adversity and the challenge life throws at you. Today's guest is Don Elgin. In 2014, at the age of 34, my life was turned upside down by a large stroke. The stroke left me with a speech difficulty called aphasia which means it can be hard to articulate all of my thoughts easily and understanding complex questions and information. That's why I decided to write this introduction and read it out word for word rather than speaking off the cuff. I'm always keen to face new challenges like hosting this podcast stroke of luck. I'm keen to learn from other people about how they have tackled or faced adversity in their lives and talk about how that has shaped and changed them. Don is a 45 year old man, a triple Paralympian, a mentor to Paralympic athletes and amputees, a motivational speaker, a disability coach, a family man, and a podcast host. He was also born with a physical disability with his left foot amputated shortly after he was born. He lives in Melbourne but was raised in the country town of Tokamore. He is now retired from competition in athletics and Don's amazing life story and his attitude of positivity makes him an inspiration to many. As a sports lover who also now has a disability, I was keen to hear Don's story. If this story raised concerns for you, or someone you know, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11
0: 14. So Don, thank you for coming. Mate, I tell you what, I'm bloody wrapped to be here, Paul. To be really honest, that's. Uh, it's not every day you get an opportunity. It's not every day you get an opportunity to to be on a podcast, but for me to be on your podcast and ask you a few questions as well. So I'm looking forward to how this unfolds.
1: Yeah, thank you, and um, I'll I'll start the hard hitting answers first. <laughs> um, but you was born in the country town. Of Donald, and your dad is also Donald, and this is why your name is Don or Donald, or this is a coincidence.
0: Oh, well, I tell you what, I th- I like that, mate. Yeah, open with a piss take. You're right. I was. Uh, I'm named after my dad, and my dad's name's Donald, and my name's Donald, and I was born in Donald, and uh, it gets worse because I've got a sister called Donna. But uh, yeah, my my old man always said that his second born son, if he had one, would take his name. So that was decided. It was just what wasn't decided is that it was actually going to be born in the same town, same name. So, uh, but no, it's um, it, it is like I, I often look back and. And you would too, mate, you'd question things that your parents did, um, and some of the things you, that you look at and go, did they do that well and do I wanna do that, or did they absolutely botch that and I'm not going near it. And so, as a result, I don't have any children called Don or Donald. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not junior. You're no junior.
0: juniors, mate, that nah.
1: But you um, grow up at, um, I can't remember, I, not remember the very hard to pronounce, re- re- Tokamol.
0: Oh well played mate. You have yeah. got that better than a lot of people that have butchered that. That's spot on. So known to anyone who knows tokamol as Toke. And toke. Uh, so yeah, I was a Toke bloke for pretty much my entire childhood. I, we left Donald when I was about three, or actually when I was three days old, I was in the children's hospital. And I was in and out of there for the first 14 years of my life. And during one of the times I was home, which was great, my parents decided to move house. And I, I say it's great because they didn't wait for me to go to hospital and then take off without me knowing where I lived. But no, they, uh, they moved to Tokemole and decided they'd have a crack at running a caravan park. And so I was literally raised in a caravan park or running a caravan park. And I had a swimming pool in my front yard. So yeah, it was a great way to grow up.
1: Yeah, not very nice to grow up at this, at Tokemo, at Tok. Nice town.
0: Yeah, mate, it's a, a beautiful part of the world and, and only made better, honestly, in, uh, in 1996 after the Paralympic Games when Tokemo was named in my honour. Tokemo was uh, named the home of a Paralympian. And uh, I'm pretty sure it was me because there was no other Paralympians about, so I claimed it. But no, it was. very honoured. It, it was a, a huge honour, to be honest. Amazing. At
1: growing up, you you said your attitude was just to fit in, be like the other kids. When you realize or accepted your life is all a bit different with versus other kids.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, mate. I did grow up and I don't know that, to be honest, I don't know that it was all my doing. Like I grew up, and like all of us, we're raised based on what our parents' values are and what their understanding and education is. And that's that's the the things that we inherit until we get to a point that we we either accept and agree with that or we challenge that. And I was raised with the belief that I was like any other kid. I, I could do what anyone else could do. And, and it wasn't until you're right, those teenage years that I realised that uh, I could do those things but I did them a bit differently. And the reason I did them differently is because I didn't have a leg. I had an artificial leg and of course I was born without that artificial, well without my leg and so as a result I wore artificial legs throughout my life and uh, and it was the, the <laughs> really interesting thing is that words like disabled and special and handicap, those sort of words were, they weren't ever mentioned in our house. So we, my parents took the approach and I find it fascinating now that I work in the disability sector. I find it fascinating that my parents decided to ignore the disability as opposed to embrace it or, you know, for look at it for what it was, but they completely said, no. We're not going to have anything to do with disability apart from the fact that if you need a new leg, we'll go to Melbourne and get you one.
1: Because was there all but denial or getting on with it?
0: I think there is a tiny bit. No, actually, I'm wrong there. I don't think there's any denial. I think they were really clear that their view on disability was that you were a burden. So if you had a disability, you, were, you weren't you were like everybody else. You couldn't do what everyone else did. And they decided, well, if that's the case, we're not gonna have a disability. We'll just buddy treat you as normal and we'll show you that you can do everything. And so we expect you to do everything. So. Um, it wasn't that they were trying to deny it. I think they were just trying to do the best they could to help me fit in with the world. That And that's the way the world was back then. It, that was exactly how it was.
1: At Toke, was it um, a little bit upsetting? You can't do stuff versus other kids can do? Uh,
0: not a great deal because by the time I worked out what I couldn't do, I, I'd probably already done it i just didn't do it that well so we didn't spend a lot of time um you know seriously growing up we didn't spend a lot of time looking at the the bits that weren't there we just got on with it so if there was kids playing chasey or or you know swimming was a classic example we would uh, like as i said my parents ran the public swimming pool so we would uh, we'd be in the swimming pool literally every day in summer, like I'd wake up and if we weren't going to school, we'd be out in the pool um, yep. if we weren't, you know, working the caravan park and the, we'd play Tiggy out there with Chasey and, you know, and and, and the one rule, well, there was not many rules at the, the swimming pool, but one of them was you couldn't run on the concrete, like that was to stop kids falling over um and my mum was the the, obviously the caretaker of the swimming pool so she'd be on the the big microphone and say no running on the concrete and then (laughs) she'd say because i'd swim without my leg on so i'd be hopping everywhere and she'd say donnie slow down (laughs) and so that so i grew up like literally doing everything else but every now and then i'd have my leg off or sometimes i'd have it on so there was really no no real difference for me
1: and any encountered any bullying at, at school because your disability?
0: Oh yeah, mate, I, I reckon, I, I challenge anyone to go through life and not accept some type of mockery or bullery or, you know, or someone somebody trying to put them down because it's just mm. the way humans are. You know, as long as there's someone who's feeling a bit insecure about themselves, then they're gonna look for an easy target and, and take a pot shot. So, and that's life. So yeah, we dealt with that. I, I got bullied or, I don't know about bullied, I think bullied, it gets bandied around a bit too easy, but I certainly got teased a shitload um, it, on the very first day of school. I, I struggled. I was I was super excited about going to school. Couldn't wait. I got to to my very first day of primary school. By lunchtime, I was sitting down the playground and I was bawling my eyes out. And my brother came up and he put his arm around me. He said, mate, what's wrong? Why are you sookin'? He said, it's not fair, Jase. I said, they're all teasing me. They're calling me names like Skippy and Jake and Eileen and... I didn't realise at the time, but Eileen's a pretty funny name for a leg amputee because I sort of did lean a bit. But anyway, <laughs> I uh, I didn't like it, and I did, oh, probably because I didn't understand it. Anyway, I uh, I said to my brother, I said, "It's not good." I said, "Let's bash him up." And Jay said, we can't bash them up. <laughs> I said, why not? He goes, because you're in prep. He goes, how about, how about we show them that you can do what they can do? And so the next day we took our footy to school. We kicked the footy and, and kids could see that I could do what they could do. So very early on in life, that as long as you're, you're standing there trying to prove yourself and, and talking about it and hiding away from things, then people will will continue to try and impart themselves or their way upon you as opposed to getting out there and showing them and you know that, that old saying of actions speak louder than words. It's bloody true, mate. I I see it now. These Instagram influencers and all these people are famous for being famous. I'm going, yeah, but what have you actually done, mate? So, I, I'm a bit of a fan of just show me what you're doing, and then I'll take away my inspiration from that. And and the same deal with um, you know role models. My brother, I, I literally watched him and did what he did. So yeah, we got we got through the bullying stage pretty quick and every now and then he did have to resort to you know giving someone a bit of a touch up but yeah. anyway it worked out okay
1: yeah amazing thing was um, with sports is connecting people connect with sports is is a main, amazing thing
0: yeah you're right mate it's a, it's that leveler isn't it and even if you you're crap at sport or you're bloody good at it or you you're just like watching it or playing it we can all be emotionally invested in it and we can all have an opinion, and we'll see it later on this year, the Olympics and the Paralympics, where we, we create a nation of armchair experts. And I bloody love that, mate. I, I love the right for people to, to buy in and, and have a say based on what they think. And, uh, and honestly, the, that's why you hear so many footy clubs go, you know what, if they're not in the inner sanctum, we really don't care about what they've got to say, because everybody's got something to say.
1: I read a i read a article, not true. Not true no yeah. <laughs> a few years back, and you said you contemplating suicide was eleven years old, and a little bit battling of depression. How did you overcome that?
0: Yeah, mate, it's a uh, a real serious topic, and and I mean I, I have a laugh at most things, and uh, and when I introduce myself as one of the happiest people on the planet. I'm honest when I say that. I literally wake up every day and I, I love life. But it wasn't always that way. There was times, and, and when I said, you know, I got bullied in my first day of school, I didn't get bullied in my first day of school, I got teased. And then as I went through different stages of life, I experienced what, what real bullying was like. And and I think ultimately what happened when I, I copped it at that 11 years of age stage is that I didn't have the skills and the and the tools to be able to cope cope with, with how, how honest and how harsh people can be. And as I didn't have the skills, I thought the option for me was to check out. And, and I had a massive amount of of self pity going on at the same time, so it was that perfect storm where you're feeling vulnerable and pretty ordinary about yourself and the and the cards that have been dealt, and then you cop it from externally, and then you don't have the skills to cope with it. It's a melting pot for disaster, and and that's exactly how I found myself. And I remember, like, I don't even need to close my eyes to visualise this. It's so clear. I'd finally made it to go and play for the Tokomaru Public School in the footy team, which was you know, something I'd been left out of a fair bit because I, I just wasn't a fast runner back in those days and I wasn't as good as the other kids and, and we had a, you know, pretty handy school footy team as well. So for me to make it in meant that I, I'd sort of got to a decent sort of level within school. And we went and played the other school in the town and that day I was like the novelty. I was the one that the, the whole, it, it seemed like, and this is what happens as well. Although the reality wouldn't have been this situation, but my perception of it and my reality that day was that the whole other team, the whole other school, had just decided to give it to me. And and they gave it to me and and I and I felt pretty ordinary. I went home and I'm sitting there and I was crying. And I'm sitting on on three boxes of Coca-Cola, 1.25 bottles of Coke. So they come in boxes of 12, and we were to put them in the in the shop and sell them. So this is how clear it was. I had a freezer on either side, and the cash register there on my right hand side. And I'm sitting there, and I'm I'm crying. And Dad walks in the shop. And he says, "Mate, what's wrong? Why what are you looking?" I said, "Dad, why did it have to be me?" Why not my brother or one of my three sisters have one leg? Why Why did I have to be the one in our family that had the one leg? And, and you know, and why me? And Dad said, credit to him, he, he didn't say what I thought he would say. He didn't say, oh you'll be right, mate, it's OK. He, he gave it straight back to me he Goes well, why not you? You've got you've got a good attitude. You can deal with this. It's only a bit of your leg, could be way worse. And then all of a sudden, these things are like, like great little verbal crack around the ears that I needed to say, hey, wake up to yourself, mate. Things could be a bloody lot worse and you've got out of this okay. And and so after that, he didn't answer for me the question of, of why not. He made me and left that with me to answer. And what I had ringing in my head after that moment was that I've got a good attitude. I can deal with this. And I thought, I'd never even thought about my attitude. How do I know if it's good or bad? I thought, well, if dad says it's good, I've got a good one then I must have a good one. So I then started looking at, well, what does a good attitude look like? How, like, how do I make the best of this? And then I started thinking about, well, yeah, imagine if I had no legs, like I wouldn't be able to kick the footy. Imagine if I had no arms, wouldn't be able to mark it. And so all, all of a sudden, no eyes, couldn't see it. So I started being really grateful that I was only missing a bit of leg and you know, at 11, to have such a, a real strong fork in the road, a choice to go this way or that, and to have somebody like my dad, who was old school, who just called a spade a spade, give it to me uh, in a way that I could comprehend and, and work with, was absolute gold. Uh, and I, I personally think that was uh, that was the difference. There's no question in my mind that was the difference for me Of from that moment on
1: that's amazing because the next question was where your attitude come from sounds like your dad
0: oh made every day of the week my old man and and my mum they were just a uh, couple of young lovers you know 18 19 got married had some kids and and so my dad was uh he was 21 I think when I was born um you know so that that young parent from the bush that just out there having a crack and trying to make the best of a situation and so you couple that with the opportunities that are presented to me throughout my life and those opportunities were the children's hospital in and out of there from three days old through to 14 15 years of age Um, you know later on getting into sport and and traveling the world with people with disabilities you know and and being able to be in these situations that remind you that the, the absolute only thing in life Paul that we can choose is our attitude is the way we deal with things and and how we act and react and and as long as we've got that control then Why wouldn't we why possibly on the planet? Why wouldn't we want to choose to see things in a positive light to be grateful for what we have and so as I you know track through life I continue to, to look for things. And, and the more time I'm around people that that I share my take on life, the more I'm reminded when they just, when they appreciate being in your company or, or sharing that view. So yeah, absolutely. My parents mate, massively and my, my siblings also help shape that.
1: I totally agree. And uh, I guess my own experience is the positive, it is the positive attitude was very important with, with me i'm very fortunate i can do with it i'm very fortunate i'm speaking right now <laughs> so, for Paul, example tell
0: me the name of your podcast
1: stroke out for Like
0: mate that right there and when we first spoke and we had a chat about you know me being a guest on your podcast and it it, oozed some feedback for you is your positivity your approach to the situation uh, and the way you're you're going about your life mate for me I, I look at that I look for that every day in my life where is where is other people that uh, march to this tune that have got some energy to share and 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 i it's not wasted so your your take on on your situation and and having a crack at life and stepping back up to the plate i bloody love it mate like that's the sort of (laughs) stuff that fuels me so good on you
1: thanks don thank you You said you be convinced with classifying being disabled growing up you can
0: explain that yeah yeah, i did i did need a bit of convincing actually because as i said mate being disabled it's most of being disabled is a lot of what you believe it is and so i believe that it was a problem to admit to having a disability. The fact that I didn't have a leg had stuff all to do with it. It was more that I thought that it meant that I I wouldn't be able to do other stuff because society said no. This is this is the box that you're in because you're disabled. So I just literally grew up believing that I was like everybody else and disability wasn't a part of my world. And then it wasn't until 1990 and a couple of my mates came up to me at high school and said Donnie why don't you go to the Paralympics? And I said, what are you talking about? Because I'd never heard of them. 1990, mate. This is back in the olden days. And I was 14. They said, oh, they're games for disabled people. (laughs) And I said, mate, I can't go to those. They said, why not? I said, duh, I'm not disabled. They said, mate, you've got one leg. You're disabled. They started to talk to me about it. and, And what they said just rang a lot of bells for me. They said, first and foremost, that it's representing the country. And if the Olympics are overseas, so are the Paralympics. And I'm thinking, how good would that be? But he'd go overseas to play sport. I love sport and I thought it would be a cool thing to do it in another country. So as simple as as something that just was like that fuel just being poured on that pilot light of, of uh, ambition inside us. For me, that was it. That was the moment I just thought, I want to have a crack at this. And then what, what happened after that is there was a bit of convincing, because I had to go home and tell Mum and Dad. I said, Mum, Dad, I said, I've got to go to the Paralympics. And my dad said, to the what? I said, oh, to the Paralympics. He said, what are they? I said, oh, they're games for disabled people. My dad said, you're not bloody disabled. (laughs) There goes my trip overseas. So I had to convince mum and dad that I was disabled, which surprisingly didn't take as much as I thought it would. But anyway, it turned out that uh, we decided that we'd have a crack. And what the have a crack would look like for me as a 14-year-old in Tokemole, New South Wales, right on the border of Victoria and New South Wales, and no internet in those days because it hadn't been invented yet and uh, and it certainly hadn't reached toke and uh, we got the yellow pages out we looked through we found out there was an amputee association of new south wales we rang them up and we found out that they had competition up in narrabeen and we entered we got the forms posted out to us we entered it and we got up there and at first i thought oh i'm going to swim against disabled people and of course i had the public swimming pool in my front yard i could swim okay Actually, I can swim very well, to be honest, and I, I thought I'm going to swim against disabled people. I'm not really disabled, I'm going to get to win everything, man. I felt like a cheat. But um, what was amazing and awesome is that I got my butt kicked. I literally got my butt kicked out of, half of most of the events that I went in, and I won two of them. And from that moment on, I realised that being disabled doesn't mean you're useless. And it was a turning point for me, I had to be exposed to something that could show me that what I'd believed was out of whack. And it worked.
1: And you like the the label of being who has overcome adversity?
0: <laughs> oh, you know. Um, i don't know does anyone ever overcome stuff like this is uh, this is a bloody great question like do we overcome it? i don't overcome it because my leg didn't grow back and when i wake up in the morning i still going to hop to the toilet or bloody crawl or get there somehow or put a yep. leg on so um, a very
1: general term i guess
0: yeah yeah i like to like you know what adversity i reckon i've had bigger adversity has got nothing to do with disability and yeah. and so for me overcoming adversity like i just look at it and go mate that is the card that's been dealt to me and now it's up to me how i play that card through my life you mate you got your card and it said you're gonna have a stroke at buddy how old were you 34.
1: 34
0: i thought it was 35 she was <laughs> lucky i didn't say Close. at 34 you get whacked with a stroke mate. that's yep. your card and now here you are playing it going yep okay speech I've got that I'll do a podcast like go figure who starts a bloody podcast after they've had to learn to talk again like give me a break that's that is overcoming adversity mate that is that is saying righto what am I going to do with what I've got me, I didn't really have a choice, I just had to live. And every now and then you find other ways to make living easier or more challenging. It's easier when you're positive, it's easier when you're surrounded by people that, that don't put you down, that boost you up, but it's easier when you get a bit of feedback and you've got people in your network that trust you to give you, give you some honest feedback that helps you become better. So, yeah, I find that having a good attitude, mate, is more about overcoming adversity than anything else.
1: Maybe a better question is, you like the term of inspiration? For, For example, I remember in hospital, my speech therapy and other people always said, oh, poison, inspiration. And I said, why? I had a stroke. Not my fault. I had a stroke. I was not inspiration before, but before the the
0: stroke, why now? Yeah, and I think you're right, mate. I think my version of inspiration and motivation is a bit like your undies. You know, it's it's personal. <laughs> it, it, they're I'm not saying they're full of crap, but I, I I'm saying that people, people get to choose what their motivation is. And sometimes we become motivation porn, like people look at us and go, Oh, that's great. For you and I, it's like no, nah, actually mate, I, I didn't get what I wanted. I'm just bloody working hard to get it. If that inspires somebody, because that's where they're at, then who am I to say no, I'm not an inspiration to somebody, or I'm not a motivation to somebody. But to look for me to be your inspiration or your motivation? Well, I think that's a bit much for mm. for anyone to have to play that role. But if you can be inspired because of what you see and people having a crack, then half your luck, I say. So, yeah, but I, I we said it a lot at, particularly at Paralympics, you sort of you get around a whole lot of people with disabilities that have got a passion for sport and they've got an eye on the prize and you've got some downtime. You're talking about things that and, and some things that we hated, like literally hated being that that Oh, they're inspirational because they're going to the Paralympics so you know what it's bloody inspiration when you win an Olympic medal that's inspiration you know knocking everyone else off but going to the Paralympics that's a whole lot of people who've got a disability and just love sport mate so yeah I'm with you I think sometimes but we we also can get caught up in in spending time trying to hose it down when I figure well that's somebody else's choice so yeah that's true
1: obviously you have face many challenges in your life, and especially the early stages, e.g. losing your leg. I think you had open heart hurt surgery. You had a issue with your stumps. And yeah, your attitude is pretty amazing. I guess my question is, this happened later in life. Would you have a different outlook? For example, the amputee Happen when you 10 years old or adult life?
0: Yeah, uh, another ripping question, mate. I, I often, um, maybe it's just through my practice of practicing gratitude, but I often reflect on how fortunate I am how fortunate I am to be born without my leg. And yeah, there was times in my life that seriously, I was just like, it sucked, it sucked when the the bone in the bottom of my stump would grow quicker. And so I'd have to have that shaved off, like literally amputated again, otherwise if left to its own device, it would have just grown out the end of my, my stump. Um, you know they're they're tough times because w- there's a combination of things that make them tough like you you're missing out on playing sport with your mates because you're banged up in hospital you know like it's a tough time when you're a kid and you're i was born without my thumb on my left hand and my fingers on both of my hands were stuck together i did have open heart surgery at about the age of three and like,
1: i assume, i assume you can't remember
0: no and i think i remember I definitely remember some of these body operations there's no question about that and i mm. have a phobia of needles so you know all this talk about vaccinations now and every time there's a news story they put somebody having a needle like i can't see that like i actually have a cold sweat when i see a needle and um and i think that's got a lot to do with having so many needles as kids and you know as operations after operation that type of stuff but when i think about the tough time of those challenges i think often that my parents had to do that tougher like as mm. a kid you're just you're just doing what you're told and and sucking it up like you you know as a battler or a fighter like all you're really trying to do is get back out there with your mates or you know get through this this time that has consumed you so the time you're you're lying in hospital and you know i don't I don't wish it upon anyone, but certainly in those days, the to lie in hospital and 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 just I think be able to cope with it because I was a kid and that's what I had to do, I didn't necessarily have that comparison. So to your question of do I think I got out of it okay or better as a kid versus losing it or having it later on in life, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind I'm I'm better off having lost my leg as a kid because I've dealt with it you know, much earlier and I didn't have that that sense of loss or grief because something's happened. And so for me to be able to run, for example, every step of the way, I've had to, to keep putting those blocks in front to be able to do that. Whereas for you to be able to run now, you've had the ability to be able to run taken away from you. So it's such a, it's a much bigger hurdle for you because you have to rebuild and start again. Whereas I was only doing it the first time once to to learn like any other kid would. Whereas as an adult, you've, you've already done that learning and now you have to go and learn it again, so. Yeah,
1: I guess, I, I think my attitude is similar with you because I think I'm very fortunate because um, my stroke was so quick and I was, i honestly, I can't remember the acute stages. I can't remember the, the coma, I can't remember the ICU, and I was not really traumatized because, but I'm more, I think more and my family and my wife is more traumatized for me, similar to your, your mum and dad Would you.
0: Yeah, you're spot on, mate. And the, the impacts, and this is why we say so often that people with disabilities, they're not on their own, mate. Like, the, the impact is far greater. You know that there's other people that it affects, and and for me, my parents weren't planning on having to go to the hospital, having to go down to Melbourne and get new legs made for a kid like that wasn't on their radar of a couple of young lovers going through life like, uh, you know, having a family. That that's um, you know those those are the sort of things that have that impact on other people around it. So I, I think um, what those that impact does though is it helps shape you. So if you've got the people around you and they're wrapping you up in cotton wool, then you're going to see the world as as a cotton wool wrapped person. Whereas if you've got people saying, get up, you'll be right, mate. And, and you hear that enough, then you start by getting up and having a crack at things, and that's how you see the world. So I think our our networks have a lot to do with how we turn out as people.
1: And um, you mentioned you're at the teen- teenager think about uh, Paralympics or para sports and you have uh, sporting achievements in your life representing Australia in multiple uh, Paralympics, World Championships, Commonwealth Games, receiving medals and awards from that and you completed the Kokoda, Kokoda track twice I think Long questions, sorry, but... um, No, you
0: notice how I didn't interrupt. I love it when you're talking about my career. Keep going, mate. This is fantastic. No, no, you're right. Two Um, times Kakoda. Yes, go on.
1: Yeah. What's your proudest moment for your career?
0: I'm glad you said for your career at the end of that because without question, my proudest moment in my life is my four kids. Like, that's a a given um, and in a league of its own. Uh, My favourite word on the planet is dad and I love it when it's coming out of my kids' mouths and they're, they're coming at me with something. Um, my proudest moments or best achievements, definitely doing Kokoda, mate. Jeez, I that was bloody tough. There's, there's no way I can tell you that I could have prepared myself for how tough that was gonna be. Um, if I had one, if I could do it all again, the only thing I'd wish for is that I could do Kokoda at the beginning of my athletics career because what that did for me and the amount of appreciation for for other people that were being willing to give their life so that i could play sport and represent i've always had a a decent measure on on the, how fortunate I was to be able to play sport and represent our country and, and travel the world, all that sort of stuff. Um, but knowing when you go to those cemeteries, at Babana War Memorial Cemetery in in um, Port Moresby, or you go to those um, you prayers in, in Belgium, and you know, and, and when I travelled, I did go to those places. The um, the appreciation for what I have is what makes all that work special, um, and and what. I suppose what moved me the most was when I was there and I'm looking at the tombstones and I realised that I have outlived all the people that had given their life at a younger age for me to, to have this quality of life, to be able to play and, and call Australia home. You know, they were, that That is the ultimate sacrifice. We talk about sacrifices in sport. Uh, you know what, I, I, I learnt at, at one point in my career, my sporting career. We had a great head coach and he's a good mate of mine, Chris Nunn, and he, he come to the team one day, he said, you know what, I'm hearing a lot about sacrifices. He goes, I, I don't do sacrifices, I do choices. Well, I'm either choosing to do this, or I'm choosing to do that. I'm not sacrificing. It's a choice to go down that path, and it's a choice to say no to those things. And I thought, you bloody ripper! So that that really had an impact on me. I adopted that approach, and and I don't think I've sacrificed anything in my life. I've made choices to, to um, you know, to go down that path. And, and those choices, they have, they have outcomes. You know, I remember I would train on Christmas morning thinking that my competitors wouldn't train this day, so I'd get up and go to training and I'd bust my gut. And, you know, it was a laughing joke in my family that I'd be asleep at lunchtime every Christmas because I was knackered. I'd got up early so I could get the training done before. But um, there, I don't think you could ever shy away from being in that, such a unique time that your home country hosts the games and you happen to be at some of the best shape of your life. And so to be able to compete in my home country was something i'll never forget you know the opportunity to win a medal there just blew my mind but just what are the what are the chances of people that go through their their sporting careers your your window of what i don't know let's say 5 10 maybe 15 years who knows i I literally extended i got a, a good run out of mine but in that time for your country to host the games, that's pretty unique. So, yeah, it was pretty special. So all this talk about Brisbane 32, you know, if they get that, it's it's going to be awesome. Whoever yeah. gets it, but come out retiring. Nobody hope. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's not be silly. Uh, but I did. I come out of retirement for. Uh, for the opportunity to see if I can compete at the Commonwealth Games and uh, and of course you read that out that I did make it, I did indeed and it was bloody amazing to, to wear an Australian tracksuit, Australian Commonwealth Games and to go out and compete in Glasgow uh, in front of 50,000 people at Hamden Stadium, you know, throw that discus, it was uh, with my wife and my eldest daughter there, uh, that was awesome too. So, But very fortunate in my career and of course then to back up from Sydney four years later and, and win. Uh, become a triple Paralympic medalist in in Athens was um, you know again something I'm really grateful for.
1: Amazing and um, at your peak at your at athletics career, what type of commitment was expected?
0: Yeah, good question around expect expected um, because for me I, I wasn't one of these people and I'm sure they're out there, but I I, I wasn't one of them that was was gifted I've had to bust my gut for every opportunity I've ever had and and I don't resent that I'm grateful for the for the platform to be able to do that um, but definitely being able to to commit to a goal and do whatever it takes within the rules to get there um, for me meant that I would, I was a multi-eventer, so shot put, discus, one hundred, four hundred, and long jump, all in the one day, and it's and it's tough when you're taking on the world's best athletes, but the the expectation from. Uh, the selectors was that I, there would be a qualifying standard and I would make that and then be selected into the team. For me, then the expectation comes back to me, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to just make the team or do I actually want to see if I can be one of the best athletes in the world and medal? And so as a result, I always aimed high. I figure stuff like the rules aren't written yet. We don't know who's going to get those medals, so someone's going to get it. Might as well be me. I'll have a crack. So I committed to, um, to doing everything I could. That ended up being a result of training 12 times a week. I'd train every morning before work, every afternoon after work, I'd train and compete on the weekends. And to be honest, I I got the best outcomes I could based on what I put in. If I had to trained two or three times a week, then there's not a hope in hell I would have been able to go to those three Paralympic Games or four World Champs and two World Cups. It just, at Commonwealth Games, it just wouldn't have happened for me. So yeah, the, the hard work was the, the outcome.
1: It's a pretty, big commitment. I guess also because um, the Paralympics is um, less, I guess, funded versus the normal um, Olympics, more money and stuff. So it must be tough.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is tough, mate. But you know what? I, I know that I was amongst a very elite group very, very small group that got to stand on a medal podium in my country in the year 2000 to collect a medal for that hard work. And if it was easy, everyone would have lined up and, and went and done it. So the fact is that it was hard meant that a lot of people didn't do it. And and I'm not afraid to step up to the plate with a bit of hard work. I think that's why most people miss opportunities is because it's disguised as hard work. You know, if you get your head around the fact that the best things in life, uh, they're not free. They take bloody hard work and commitment and relationships to that. And and you know, you, I keep coming back to you hosting this podcast. I love the fact this is bloody hard work. It, you know, to get the right people involved to to help you bring it together, for you to step up to the plate, to make those phone calls, to 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 go out of your comfort zone to make this happen when, when your history in your past wasn't that you were a radio presenter or this is not second nature to you. So I think buddy, awesome work. That's hard work and it's, it brings great results.
1: Thank you. <laughs> so what uh, athletes or people inspire you?
0: Uh, really good looking ones. Um, people with money that like to give it to one-legged people. That they, No, I honestly mate, I, I love people that are happy. I, I love people that are, you know, you, you see it every now and then at the Olympics or maybe the Paralympics and that person that wins that silver or bronze medal and everybody chomping at the bit and they're happy and they're, they're loving what they've achieved because they get it, you know, and and for me in life we don't know when our time is up and and just being a good human is the most we can ask or the best we can hope for and so i I figure when i'm around good humans i i rate that i really get i feed off that i feed off people that are positive not dumping their negative crap on me or other people in the world I feed off the the energy of people that help other people like what is not to to make our world a better place if all the people we we knew were out there and willing to help other people you know you don't have to do it but if you're willing to do it that for me is what what inspires me what what motivates me is 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 just really wanting to to make my time count and and also leave the world in a in a bit better shape. And given I'm I'm not um, well, given I believe the best thing I can do is leave good humans behind. So my role as dad, raising decent humans, you know what? If I nail that bit, then then my time and, and running around the world, and playing sport and and speaking and doing all those things, it's like they're great fun. But if I've raised decent humans, then mate. I've, I've used my time well
1: what's your take about the perception of prosthetics with using a possibly a unfair advantage with other runners I read a, an article only a few days ago with this guy was disallowed to compete at, um, at Tokyo and um, because the prosthetic is too um, too fast or something
0: yeah I'll help you with that one mate it's the the legs that he's wearing are too long so it makes his gait much longer so in other words when he puts his walking legs on then the the challenge he has that I don't have is that he's missing both of his legs so his true height no one actually knows what that is my true height is whatever my good foot touches the ground and the top of my head whereas if you've got no barometer then that's they can create that But there's enough measures, enough tools to be able to say, hang on, um, your thighs are this long, your arms are this long. There's eight different um, measurements you can take to determine someone's height. And unfortunately... um, what they've done is they've said right oh here's your walking legs and you you use these get around in life But then with your running legs the blades are we've made them a bit longer and of course the stride length can be longer you're going to cover more distance in less time and so um, And that's that's the issue there. So in terms of an advantage Then yeah, there is an advantage there and, and there's no question that um if they just follow the rules. This is the crazy thing, mate. There's actually rules to say, your legs can't be any greater length than this. So if this bloke, and I um, i forget his name off.
1: Uh, Blake, Blake Leaper.
0: Yep, Blake Leaper. And yeah. um, uh, yes, thank you for that. Blake hasn't followed the rules, mate. It's as simple as this. If he gets his legs at the same height, then he'll be able to um, be competitive. The problem is he can't run that fast. With the same leg height he's not making those times so the only way to make those times is to make the legs longer why should he if he can't qualify in his normal everyday walking legs then why should he be allowed to change his legs and get into a faster leg to run at the Of course it gives him a bloody advantage does that leg give you more advantage than your able-bodied legs nah it doesn't because it doesn't return more than you can put into it however Anyone at the Olympic Games hasn't got the opportunity, the luxury to change from their walking legs, their legs into running legs. So unless, my view is, unless you can do those times and meet the rules of good, mate, as long as we stop stuffing around with the rules and just accept them and play within it, then people that can be fast enough can be at the Olympic Games. Otherwise, bad luck.
1: Don, you have four kids.
0: Yes, thank you.
1: Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing four kids anyway <laughs> I obviously think I should you
0: pass that on to my wife mate because yeah. i have a fun part of that by the way
1: <laughs> retired from sports now but at your sports endeavors how do you find the time to compete find your career write a book public speaking at the same time to write um work and raise a family lots of yes. sacrifice with your wife
0: but I dead set thought you were going to say and you've retired from making babies now and you didn't <laughs> go there. But I, um, yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's just that commitment. It's, the, it's the, the decision to get the most out of life. And I just figured that, we could probably make things work and a a massive part of it is time management you know like there'll be times when I'm out in my office and like writing the the books you know that that was a um, a lot of work goes into that and the um, same with raising kids you know like I can't think of a better thing than than walking my little fellow to school every day and you know we hold hands or kick the footy or we we talk and and I love it my daughter's a, a couple of a Grown up, and and one still at school, and you know, when my eldest daughter comes home, and she's a nurse, and she's talking to me about, you know, some of her daily activities or what's happened, uh, you get out of it what you put in, and the same. Oh, I've got mates, really good mates, that are they've got a lot of property and they've got a lot of uh, wealth, and and they've they've spent all their energy there. I've just decided to. I've got a, a ton of energy, but I'm going to spread it out over a few different things, and and someone said to me years ago, oh, Don, if you didn't have so much on, you po- quite possibly would have got a, a few more gold medals. And I'm going, well, <laughs> you know what? I, I don't know that that would have changed my, my life a great deal. Like a silver or a bronze for me, um, given that I was up against a pretty bloody handy competition. But I, at the same time, I have like, I own my own house. Like I worked hard at all these things. I, I put plans in place. And when I, I see today the way we go through life and people, you know, uh, a void or a lack of a plan or, and they're not sure. Mate, I'm used to thinking four years in advance, thinking of exactly what I'm going to do on that day, where I'm going to be in the world four years out picturing planning to be on that podium, you know, having competed. So thinking four years in advance for me is, is sort of natural behavior, to be honest. So it's it's easy when you start to say, right, I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to pay that off, how do I do that? I better go and get some education in this space. And and so you, you're just open, you have a lot of conversations, you meet a lot of people, you you talk, you ask lots of questions. and And this is how we got it. And so my wife and I, you know, we're forever, we're still, and you know 24 years married in May uh, and we're talking about you know how we can make our relationship better like it's bloody great and and we're still you just don't stop working at the things that need that work so for me that's how you you make it all happen and every now and then you have you have some down times you just you switch off you stop and yeah. and that's really important
1: how has having a disability impacted your kids and your their lives also
0: yeah, I tell you, it's been some funny times, mate. We had one of my daughters come home from school and said, oh, Dad, we had this person come to, actually, she was talking to my wife, she said, Mum, had this person come to school today and they were disabled, they had a disability. And she said, yeah, go on. And she was talking about the, the, uh, the wheelchair and, and the different things that they did. And then my wife said, you know, your dad's got a disability, don't you? And she goes, no, he hasn't. so mate uh, that's the uh, that's probably the best description of uh, how my kids see me is they just see me as dad and and even my eldest she comes out to me every now and then she goes dad I'll just bloody forget that you've got one leg sometimes and it's like yeah actually so do I because I don't like I get out of bed in the morning and after I've had my shower and I put it on I'm good to go mate it's it's ideally is no longer an issue for the rest of that day. So I've, mm. uh, I've taken up footy again recently, and I'm learning that there's a few things that you don't get in credit. You don't get fitness in credit, and it doesn't <laughs> stay with you just because you're super fit at some stage. So um, honestly, mate, just living a full life is, is what makes me happy, and yeah. my kids see that.
1: What about your work? You um, founded a manage- management company all about amputees, Supporting Paralympics athletes and, are you, and you're working with the, you said, support services of disabilities called Lara. Must be a very satisfying feeling to other disadvantaged people in general. But last year at COVID time, your role changed. Tell us about it.
0: To right it changed, mate. I had, um, as, a, as a motivational speaker you're you're banking on 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 getting work that's as simple as that so you're at events and you you want people to be to to get something out of it and then recommend you to, to somewhere else so you get some more work and 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 then you sort of honestly it's gig by gig that's how you sort of live in that space and so i saw that that was uh, my way of life. Was uh, I wanted to play sport and wanted to share the value of a positive mindset and and stories about that I've learned along the way in life to to live a happy life. So my basis of of building my life, um, my my career was around. Being a motivational speaker that shared positive tips and and stories about life, I seen other people coming through that kids that I'd known, you know, as, some as young as nine, um, growing up, becoming Paralympians, trying to get that sponsorship, trying to and having all the same battles that I had, you know, trying to seek sponsorship and doing those sort of things. And I thought, oh, we can help them. I reckon I can help them more than just be a mentor for them, but I'll actually set up a company that, that focuses on amputees. So I did that. I set up uh, Star Amp Global, and I, I went about literally helping the mini-me's of the world. And what I noticed is that there was people that, that their goal was to be the best athlete, and they just happened to have a good story or, or might have been a good storyteller. And... Um, and they may or may not have had a passion for for really getting out there and influencing other people by sharing as opposed to just talking about it. And and I I must admit, I loved the fact that I was able to help people into that space. And then of course when COVID hit, that was the event industry put a line through it that was the end of events people being like me on stage in front of a thousand people it just stopped because people weren't coming together we went to a bit of zoom action and and some people thought right oh we we need this and so i did some work over zoom for different organizations but the truth is not the same no way not even close and I love it. I, so I just said stuff, tools down on the, the speaking side of things, and my the clients, my, my guys that I was working with, they weren't getting any gigs either. So I just figured that she'll be right, we'll just do something else. So I got a bit bored at uh, just renovating the house, so I did all the stuff I wanted to like most other people in lockdown, and then I thought, what else can I do? So I got a job of installing pump stations out the bush and where they're just replacing channels that water that's flowing through channels through paddocks that get evaporated away and putting pumpers pump houses in and and um, moving the water that way i did that for a week and then i got a tap on the shoulder and said hey listen we've got a online um, component to the business at wallara and would like you to head it up are you interested and i said well what is it and they said well We've got classes online for people with a disability, a lot of people with intellectual disabilities, people that have had acquired brain injuries and need to learn new skills again or old skills again. Um, We've got people that are really struggling socially and they just want to connect. And so I got the, the opportunity to throw my hat into the ring and now I lead a team of bloody amazing people that are providing classes online for adults with a disability all around our country. And really interestingly, the ID sector is a sector that ID, as in intellectually disabled, is a part of our population we don't typically hear much from. We hear a lot about the Wheelies and the Dylan Alcots and Kurt Fernleys of the world and Louise Savage's. And then, of course, the really good looking bunch of, of amputees, the Don Elgans of the world. But the, <laughs> the people, you know, we we hear about different disability groups, but intellectually disabled we don't hear much from and and they really are a uh, almost in some ways a forgotten area of our society. We've sort of moved on and, and not thought about, geez, we're leaving people behind. So I, I'm i wrapped. I'm absolutely wrapped to throw my hat into the ring and, and bring my experience, my teamwork experience, but my passion for helping other people mm. into my role. And every day I, I literally get to work with people that have that same desire in life to help other people so mate i'm uh, i've absolutely landed on my foot during COVID. pretty happy about
1: it yeah that's amazing and um sounds like very busy including your own podcast
0: called giddy up tell us about giddy up Um uh, my giddy ups loose i've got my mate jt and uh, and we just we decided that our what we were seeing in the world is there was too many people shying away from conversations too many new bloody words being invented that stop people and so we decided that and we're both you know bokes that so we're family men we've got some kids and and we just said let's have a laugh let's let's you know let's come together each week or whenever we're going to do them and and just share some some weird wacky and wonderful things that are happening in the world and i tell you what since we've been doing this podcast there's some geez there's some crazy stuff we've researched and found actually i don't do much research but there's stuff <laughs> that i've learned about and it's uh yeah the, our podcast giddy up it, it is pretty loose but we love it and it's uh, it's a lot of fun we've got a money whisperer on there and he's taught us a, a few tips and tricks about how to make some cash and and we've got a, a couple of sponsors we've got tradie.com com sponsor us and uh, and the Yarra Valley Big Cat Beer Company are a sponsor so mate, it say yeah, it's a cracking show and it's very very interactive as well our podcast so
1: why called giddy up
0: well, you know what, it's funny because my take on life is you see the horses and it's like giddy up and... and you, But you just... Life, it's like giddy up sort of just means you're going to be up and about and you're going, you know? So yeah. for us, that was what it was about. It was just like, giddy up, let's go. We didn't overthink it, mate. We, that's what a couple of blokes like us yeah. don't spend a lot of time overthinking stuff.
1: Any questions from me?
0: Bloody oath I do, mate. I've been waiting for you to take a <laughs> breath so I can get in. Right, now, first of all, oh. want to... I want to go back, right? You said, you, and it was interesting. I was listening with intrigue around the the had the stroke, and you weren't the acutely affected because you you missed all that. So by the time you've worked it out, you're up and about, and you, you're starting to get that feedback. So I want to go back first. What is the last memory you have at 34 years of age before your stroke?
1: The memory was um, I remember the paramedics coming here luckily was at home my memory was pretty hazy because i was pretty out of it pretty almost instantly right but i remember that
0: like you fainted is that the sort of
1: i was sweating a lot i'm trying to speak but my words was not gibberish and uh yeah it was um after that i passed out maybe half an hour Two weeks in the coma and three operations. I remember lots of memories, and well, I never know the the memories will be actually happened or dreaming, actually yep. dreaming. Mainly because I have, or well, my wife said I had so many drugs in my system, right? So I was not thinking straight. Now, I'm a
0: bit of a, uh, a fan of, of an opportunity. Wherever opportunity presents to learn a lesson, then I like to take it. I'll, I'll watch something on TV and I'll turn around and have a chat with my kids to say, hey, what did you take out of that? And so at 34 years of age, like most people think stroke and they think old people. And like that's, is that common? What caused it? What have you learnt from that time?
1: You mean after, you mean? Yeah, yeah yeah i think my attitude i'm very lucky Uh, i missed the most stage of life so almost moving ahead almost straight away i was a little bit anxious with uh leaving the hospital i was living i was living in hospital in six months so a little bit anxious coming home yeah rarely dwell the bad things and trying to change the um, things I can t- change. Right. Not can't. So, but a um, few negative thoughts. For example, I was, um, after the stroke, I was not able to walk roughly four months. Yep. And I was going to rehab and, and I asked the nurses and asked, with poor language, I'm not sure how, but I asked, um, and I said, do you reckon I can walk on the future? And uh, the this nurse said, oh, definitely. Um, I worked this job over 20 years, definitely. And this tiny feedback was so crucial for my wow. recovery, yeah. because hope, yep. because I was not sure. Physically, yep. not sure. And I guess I have ongoing issues, e.g., my speech aphasia, my one side paralyzed.
0: Yep, good one. Okay, so my, I, I'm going to break it down. First things first, I've got a heap of questions, by the way. So it's about to become the world's longest podcast. Um, <laughs> so my question to you is do you know what caused it?
1: No. Um, basically, found out after. I had a called AVM in my brain with... What's uh, AVM? AVM, honestly, very long name. Yep. um, Actronym. Basically, big hemorrhage stroke. Right. And I was born with it, but I'm not aware of it before.
0: So you're cutting life with a ticking time bomb that you had no idea you were carrying. Exactly. Wow, giddy up. And what about... um, what's the trigger
1: well sometimes no triggers lots of people has it this condition right some people never um popped yeah i popped seven years ago all of a sudden but um the trigger is interesting one because always always never know because i remember pre-stroke um i was a little bit stressed yep Stress because i have moving jobs, two mortgages and whatever. Yep. A new baby, not left to sleep or whatever. But never check it out my health because I was pretty healthy. Right. And yeah, so it will be a mystery for everyone. Sometimes I'm thinking about it, sometimes often, but yep. um, sometimes it's bad because can't change it can't doing you about it so move on
0: righto so can't change you can't do anything about it check this one out you didn't know you had it but you've always had it is there a test is there something that people should do men women that children whoever to find out if they're carrying this ticking time bomb and and if they did know is there anything that can be done about it
1: the avm you can detect AVMs Mm -hmm. with brain scans, but rarely healthy people go to brain scans. The best thing is regular check your blood pressure, less alcohol, stop smoking, the normal warning signs of stroke and heart attacks and stuff
0: right so well you just become a killjoy because i love a drop so <laughs> <laughs> no me too you'll no, be right <laughs> and so tell me mate the um the the approach now for you do you so what is your goals like what have you set yourself based on where you are now and where you want to get to
1: i was um difficult with goals especially in um rehab because i reckon i was thinking i was obvious my goals was get better but obviously, the the long goal means get better. Is a very long goal to achieve, and possibly will never fully recover. I know that. I'm comfortable about it. But my, I guess, short goals is to um, work. I'm not working after still seven years. I'm happy with always very busy with. Um, volunteering, public speaking and trying to start the podcast and and basically using my brain and also parenting is a big part also. Um, so just
0: on that, uh, i to stop you there. This podcast obviously going to go out to quite a few different networks that you don't already know of. So when you talk about work, what sort of work? Like if somebody's got a job for you, what's going to get your interest?
1: That's a good question. Loaded question. <laughs> I was struggling pre-stroke anyway. <laughs> I always liked working with helping other people, possibly disability sector. I love sports, possibly with sports because I was working with sport before.
0: And what were you doing before?
1: What was that working with sport? I was a IT project manager, making websites. And um, and I started a, a new role. I was working in-house at the AFL house. Right. Helping with AFL IT projects. I started it, and I lasted only three weeks because I my stroke happened. And, uh, yeah, that's it.
0: Well, there you go, mate. I'll tell you what, it's... Uh, the opportunity comes up. So what are you like now in terms of obviously your stroke, we can hear how you're tracking uh, verbally. What do you like at, uh, you know, those skills on the computer and things like that? How are you going there?
1: My background is IT, is pretty fortunate because I know the lingo with using computers and I use te- technologies, technology. I use my phone or my almost a tick to phone to use my with any emails or text messages. I speak it. Yep. The technology translate my words, but initially, not initially. Um, after the stroke, my my speech was pre poor. So I use lots of strategies, e.g., picture boards emojis and predicted texts and stuff and
0: so assisted technologies has been a real um, game changer for you in terms of quality of life and being able to interact and that type of stuff isn't it interesting we we look at at how things change and every now and then we get a living example of of the real value of those like they're used in one way but then we see the the value and i see it regularly um, at work um, different assisted technologies whether it's a, a, a inflamed mouse or a mouse that um has different button movements on it so that it can function with the computer and uh, yeah I, I love it i just think that's uh, technology has got an absolute uh, you know important role to play for all of us so it's brilliant
1: that technology is amazing and um good chance if my stroke was 30 years ago i'll be dead i my life because modern modern medicine and i'm doing well because technology and um i'm guessing and you with you the technology with the prosthetics is amazing also advance and
0: you're dead right mate and i think that's the uh, the thing you know uh, the advancements that we've had in our life uh, and we are living in just a, a prime time aren't we we're getting to to appreciate what we've had in the past and what our parents went through and and uh, this massive rapid rate of change and for us to be able to use those things and and see them as they're unfolding and being developed i love i love being alive right now i think it's a very exciting yeah. time Thank
1: you so much, um, really appreciate it. Your time is precious, obviously, and uh, very honored to uh, take time to me to share me. And for that one reason with my aphasia, after one hour talking, my speech is worse and worse and worse
0: oh, you know hey i knew that that's why i was trying to drag it out no.
1: <laughs> thanks a lot
0: <laughs> mate thanks so much for having me on i reckon bloody stroke of luck is a cracking podcast i'm rapt to be a guest on it and i'm uh, and they bring what you uh, what you bring in spades mate which is good energy and and optimism and hope and uh, and insight too which is great mate all of those things combined to uh you know to make it good listening so thanks heaps for having me on mate i appreciate it
1: thank you very much Don. much appreciate it thank you don for that entertaining conversation it has been great to talk to someone who is fun friendly and passionate but also never sure of putting out his opinions don is an inspiration man who has achieved so much in his life and had to face so many challenges from a young age. He has shown commitment to his sport and supporting other Paralympians and commitment to helping others with disabilities. But at heart, Don is a family man whose proudest achievement is his kids, which is something I can relate to. Thank you Don for sharing your story. Hopefully you can understand my speech in the interview, despite my ongoing aphasia. And thank you for listening in. If you like that podcast, follow the show for free. And to stay up to date with me, follow my blog at iampaulfink.com.au Shout out to the Stroke Foundation for helping to fund this project. Visit their website for more information about Sign of Stroke. Thanks again to my friends Corey Layton, David Rude and Andrew Weiss for your ongoing support and make this podcast possible. Thanks also to Nick Morachi from MySportLive for the work on editing and thanks for the roles for the very cool artwork. Last but not least, Thank you to my speed therapists, Gemma Duffield for coming up with the podcast idea initially, Claire Douglas and Lauren Fletcher for helping with brainstorming and writing. This is the final episode. I hope you enjoyed the series. Keep positive, keep happy and all the best. Cheers.